Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Hey, we call Vegas Sin City. And we have the strippers, cocktail waitresses, escorts, little darlings, billboards, and the love store to prove it. It's part of everyday life in our city. But there's more to this conversation about sex. And most of us aren't comfortable talking about it. Is Sin City sex positive? Today on CityCast Las Vegas, we talk with Rebecca Bosetti. She's an assistant professor of social work at UNLV. We talk about her new course, Sexual Behavior in Society, The Good, The Bad, and The Controversial, and why Las Vegas needs more sex-positive social workers. It's Thursday, July 28th, 2022. I'm Vogue Robinson, and this is CityCast Las Vegas. It's multiple multiple screens, girl. So <laughs> I'm right there with you. I've got statistics pulled up and my syllabus hey. and all the things. <laughs> Earlier this summer, you taught a class at UNLV. Can you give our listeners the 101? Why did you create it? Absolutely. The whole intention with the class is to help us rethink sex and sexual well-being as part of our overall well-being. So it's really intended to give students skills in navigating conversations around sex and viewing sex as a positive aspect of life rather than just all of the negative things that we hear about it and using that to help clients in the local community when they leave school. What are some things you feel like are the negative things people hear about sex? Well, if we think from a sex education framework, we hear, right, STIs, don't get diseases, don't get pregnant until we want you to get pregnant, then (laughs) you better get pregnant and get on it. stay pregnant. Exactly. Topics around sexual violence, victimization and perpetration, Mm. rape myths and rape culture. I think a lot of our schemas are very negatively framed. And those are absolutely essential aspects to understanding sex and sexuality. But there's a whole world of sex outside of that, that for some reason, we're really afraid to talk about. Right. We don't get into the good parts of sex, which Sex can be and should be an enjoyable thing, but there's so much around it that's that's heavy and negative and controlling. I know that you came up with this really cool exercise (laughs) where you have to say a few words (laughs) out of the out of the sex dictionary and have students look in the mirror. Could you tell us a little bit about that exercise uh, and, and why you feel like it's important to include in the course? Yeah. One of the ways that we navigate consent and sexual encounters is being able to talk about them. But we are so afraid of language, let me tell you. So (laughs) I do what I call the mirror exercise, where I tell my students they have to go to their mirror and they have to read this whole list of sex words. And they include everything from anatomy, like penis and vulva, to specific acts like ejaculation, orgasm, penetration. And then 
aspects of reproductive health. So things like tampons, menstrual pads. Oh my God. I've seen so many men who get so uncomfortable. You're like, pads. They're like, what? That's none of my business. It's like, well, if someone you love is bleeding, (laughs) you might have to go get them a pad or some tampons. Gosh dang it. (laughs) Right. And that's such a part of the way we portray talking about women's bodies and women's physiology in popular Mm. media, right? Like you see all these movies and TV shows where someone's like, oh, I got my period. And all of the guys go, oh, gross. Don't say that. And so the intention of the exercise is really to help them gain comfort with the language and to notice changes in their, you know, in their facial expressions, in their body language, in their tone of voice, in their confidence, the awkwardness that they feel. Because if we're going to talk to clients about sex, we can't cringe every time we say a typical anatomical word. Yeah. I can't imagine trying to share something with a social worker or moving forward through, you know, a really difficult situation and then having the social worker either giggle or seem really uncomfortable with the, oh, uh, your body was doing what bodies do? Ew. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We're asking clients to be really vulnerable with us and talk about things that are really scary in general to share with another person. And if we Mm -hmm. don't even have comfort with the language, we're not going to be a supportive social worker. I always go back to the example of sex education because that's some of our first introduction to these topics. And when I ask my students to reflect on their sex education experiences, almost all of them say the instructor seemed really uncomfortable with the topics and with talking about it. And it made them less likely to ask questions and gave them this really internalized message that talking about sex is shameful. So I know you've been doing lots of research. Can you share a little bit about your research and things that have surprised you about sex education in the U.S.? You know, as I was preparing for the sex education portion of this class, I was horrified at the state of sex ed in the United Mm. States, like actually taken aback and I can't believe it's this bad. You know, the reason for that is we don't mandate sex education everywhere in the United States. And okay. Even when we do mandate it, there's a lot of variability in how old people are, what types of topics they're being taught, whether the information provided is even medically accurate. We saw, I remember, so I grew up in California, but it was two bodies like side by side that were naked and very nondescript like Ken and Barbie doll bodies. And it just showed the penis sort of like leaning up and down and it just showed a magical pixie dust out of the penis that floated to the vagina <laughs> and they were like this is where babies come from <laughs> right we're not there was, there was no penetration in the video we're not fish we don't lay eggs and then some guy comes and blows his sperm all over it to fertilize them that's oh not my how gosh. it works right no seahorses the boy the boy seahorse gets pregnant <laughs> How do you get the information? So you said, okay, not every place where it has to be medically accurate. So obviously the video I saw was not (laughs) anatomically accurate. It's just jizz in the air, basically. (laughs) But sparkly jizz. Right. So in Nevada, 
what do our laws look like? <laughs> like, what's mandated for us? So, you know, we do some things well, and there are other things we don't do really well. Nevada's public education system overall has a lot of problems, um, as I'm sure many listeners are aware. But in Nevada, we are mandated to provide sex and HIV education, and we mandate that it be age appropriate and that we get parental consent, meaning every parent who wants their child to get sex education has to sign a form saying they're allowed to participate. And this is kind of a big point of debate and an issue because many parents either will choose not to sign it for Mm -hmm. their own personal values reasons, but we also know kids forget forms or lose forms and that, you know, parents are busy and sometimes overlook things. And so it's really excluding a lot of people from the access to positive sexual information. And I think Even more interesting is the stuff that we don't mandate in Nevada. So we are a state that does not mandate the information we provide to be medically accurate. And so we can get really biased perspectives like fake statistics on the effectiveness of birth control. Um, So you can see how that can allow certain agendas to be pushed and in particular abstinence only agendas. Abstinence only education, right. And the research it's in states that teach abstinence only have higher rates of teen pregnancy and higher rates of STI transmission. And the kids in states that are taught abstinence only actually start having sex at earlier ages than the kids who are taught comprehensive sex education. Mm -hmm. You know, Nevada also doesn't mandate that the sex education that's provided be inclusive And so that means they're not required to provide information that is culturally competent or relevant. They are not required to cover the range of different sex and gender identities and expressions. And so even more students are excluded from the process of getting good information about their bodies. Yeah. And and what they're interested in, what they're attracted to, and how to safely explore what they're interested in, for sure. So what do you think sex ed should look like? I think Overall, we want sex ed to be a positive experience. And one of the best ways to do that is to remove some of those shame aspects that we all very deeply feel when we think and talk about sex. Sexual shame isn't something that we're born with, right? Anyone who's met a baby or toddler knows they rip their clothes off any second they get. They have no shame (laughs) about being naked or talking about their bodily functions. And that's something that we really teach them. And so to try to accomplish that goal, sex education should be occurring not just at one time point in middle school or high school, but should be starting at the earliest stages of life. And Mm. I apologize in advance. You might get some listeners who are really upset about that and will say, don't teach our kindergartners how to use condoms. That wouldn't be included in sex education. Yes. No. <laughs> right. But my nieces get taught, you know, what their body parts are, what body parts that should and should not be touched by just anyone without permission. We try not to teach them 
shame around their bodies, but also safety, trying to figure out the language to use to tell them to be careful and making sure they're aware that that they do, that they have bodies and their bodies are changing. Yeah. And that's part of a really balanced approach. And so, you know, when we're talking about starting at a young age of four or five years old, we're teaching them, what are the names for your body parts? What does it look like? What does it do? And Mm. really teaching them that there isn't an inherent shame to having any particular body part, but that we do different things to take care of and protect them. And so we frame that The same way with feet, right? We wear shoes outside to protect our feet from getting cuts and bruises. We wear underwear and pants to make sure we're protecting against bacteria and that we're not making other people uncomfortable by showing them parts of our body. How do we bring pleasure and consent further into the conversation? I was in vagina monologues in undergrad, and I think that was the first time I learned the word consent and thought, oh, like here are places where I have choice. Yeah, we're starting to apply more of what we call a bodily autonomy framework, which means you have awareness that you get to say what happens with your body and who has access to it and under what circumstances. And this is our idea of consent. And one of the ways that we can model this really early is, you know, asking our young kids, is it okay if I give you a hug? And then if they say no, respecting that answer. If we Mm -hmm. ask kids or if they tell us, you know, stop tickling me and we don't listen, we're sending them a message that they don't have control over what happens to their bodies. Yes, And that definitely translates into the way we think about and talk about pleasure. And I can tell you, we don't have a lot of good frameworks for how to do this yet because so few education curricula include pleasure. But the big things are really encouraging people to be mindful. So knowing how the brain operates as a sex organ, knowing that Mm. if we are worn down by things like body shame or self-consciousness or evaluation anxiety or performance anxiety, those rob us of the pleasure of being in the moment and experiencing sensation. And so you always have to start with the brain. And around that conversation about pleasure, how do we talk about pleasure? I think we're in we're in that city, right? Las Vegas is known as Sin City and pleasure is sold. Any observer knows that about our city. <sighs> so what do you feel like you've noticed about the culture of sex in Las Vegas? One of the big things that I've noticed about Las Vegas in general is there is excess, right? We're we're known for our buffets. So any hunger Mm. or craving you have, you can satisfy. And it's the same with sex, right? We have dancers, we have strip shows, we have in the broader state brothels and legalized prostitution. We have sexual imagery used to sell everything and so many adult toy stores. So sex is... There are so... They are like ice cream shops. I feel like we got ice cream shops (laughs) and we have (laughs) sex shops. And sex shops. Those are the three main things. I love that you framed it as excess. And I think it's a disservice to not explain that or have more open and frank conversations about the body and who we give access to our bodies. 
in a city where it's it's put on a platter. Like here's here's the buffet and here are bodies. And and very often it's women's bodies. Yes. And so there's a big role of objectification in this too, of seeing people and seeing bodies as objects of pleasure or stimulation or fantasy rather than as consenting or equal partners in those exchanges. And I do want to say, you know, fantasy has a role in us exploring what are the things that bring us pleasure. You know, we mm-hmm. we have to explore what are the things that we can see ourselves engaging in? What are the things that make us feel all hot and bothered when we picture them versus the yeah. things that don't? And I don't want to hate specifically on sex toy stores because I will admit I've been in them and those employees are the most sex positive people you will ever meet. They will explain things. They will tell you which lube to get. This lube is a uh, water soluble. Do you feel like overall that our culture is sex positive in Las Vegas? I would say it's kind of a mixed bag. We definitely have more access for opportunity to talk about sex here. And I think that can be a really great starting point for us. Of We have things like the Erotic Heritage Museum, you know, we're the only True. state with any type of legalized sex work. And, you know, we've shown that reduces violence against women who are engaged in sex work. And so I think we have these really positive aspects, but we're still situated within the broader culture of the United States that sex and pleasure are really taboo topics. And so I think we can use a lot of the access that living in Sin City gives us to facilitate these healthier, more open and supportive conversations. Just the fact that, you know, we're still uncomfortable saying the basic words or thinking about pleasure or talking about it, I I think indicates we have a lot of work still to do. And why do you feel like it's so important for social workers in Sin City to really build their knowledge and skills in this arena? So sexual well-being has a lot of social justice implications. When we go back to talking about different sexual and gender identities, we know that members of the LGBTQIA plus community are very often discriminated against, that they're at risk for things like homelessness and suicide at higher rates than other communities. And so we need to be able to give good accurate, healthy, positive information to help support the well-being of those individuals. And the same thing goes for sex. If we're not talking about consent, we are creating an environment that's rife with non-consensual interactions, whether Mm. those are things like hugs or kisses, or if it's something that reaches the severity of sexual assault and rape. And so I think it's really a core component of the fact that social work is supposed to help people. We're supposed to meet them where they're at, and we're supposed to help them achieve mental and social and behavioral and physical well-being. And sex is a part of that. Well, hopefully we are on the way. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. I am so proud to do this in Las Vegas and hopefully be able to get the conversation started. A lot of news. Here's some news before you go. Boyd Gaming's Eastside Cannery is still standing in the midst of several other closed properties that are scheduled to be demolished. Eastside, we are rooting for you. 
I guess I shouldn't be surprised that our desert city ranks number one for backyard pool parties. How did we get this very scientific data, you ask? An online credit card points company looked at the weather and the cost of party supplies, and Vegas is number one. One billion dollars. This is the unclaimed amount that could be won from the Mega Millions jackpot lottery. Now, if you want in on the ultimate gamble, ironically, you can't do it in Nevada. You got to drive to a border town like Nipton, California or Kingman, Arizona. What are your odds? One in 302.5 million. May the odds be ever in your favor. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Take care. That's the climax of the show. <laughs> <laughs>